This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. This episode is brought to you by Flygal Ventures. We're cleaning out our inventory and are taking 25% off all merchandise. Men's and women's clothing, feathers, flies, nothing is off limits. Shopping with American dollars? With your dollar, you can count on yet another 25% off with the Canadian conversion. That's a savings of 50% off. Don't wait. We don't expect items to last long. Just enter code SHOP25 at checkout. Visit www.flagal.ca and click on the shop button. Ian Ricketts is an avid fly fisherman who just happens to be the vice president of Ocean Brands, a Richmond, B.C.-based marketer of canned wild salmon and tuna. Ocean Brands owns Ocean's Tuna and Gold Seal Salmon, two brands many of us have grown up with. In this episode of Anchored, Ian and I discuss the commercial tuna industry, and Ian explains Ocean's strategy and steps towards more responsible practices. So I was born in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Oh, you were in the Flatlands. Uh, on this date in 1966. It's your birthday today? Yes, it is. Oh, my. Happy birthday. And Thank you. Oh, that's so embarrassing. <laughs> this is what the listener doesn't realize. So it's now 7.30 right. p.m. Right. We're in your office. Right. 
And because I have a flight to catch up tonight. Right. And I said, well, because obviously I've got the chintzy mic here with me. I, I didn't have all my material. Right. And I said, well, I can make this meeting work on my way out of town. Ian didn't tell me, everybody, that it's his birthday. Ian, what are you going to do? Do you have family at home? My wife is, uh, my wife, Rita, oh, lovely wife, Rita. I'm really hurt now. No, no, you know, we, we <laughs> actually decided to exchange uh, having a, probably a very expensive dinner to having a very nice brunch. Okay. So we had a really nice morning together. Okay. And I started late. <laughs> well, thank you for spending your birthday with me. And that for should sure. speak volumes because I've had another very um, passionate conservationist on yep. my show, Bruce Hill. Right. And I also interviewed him on his birthday. So it goes to show that the guys who really yeah. care put themselves second. So it's pretty you. important. It's pretty important. Well, let's talk about it. Okay, so you're born in the Flatlands. Happy birthday. Yeah. <laughs> born in the Flatlands. What brought you and when did you come to British Columbia? So in 1972, my dad uh, brought us into BC. He was a miner. He worked underground in the Saskatchewan for potash and uh, came west looking for a better life for his family. And uh, we, we settled in Princeton, BC. So how old were you then? Six, seven. Okay, BC is your home. BC is where I grew up and where it all happened. Okay. Did dad fish? Dad taught me to fish. Uh, We actually did a little fishing out in Saskatchewan, which I remember. And, uh, you know, he was really patient. Uh, Every time I'd lose a spoon and he'd have to stop fishing, he'd come over and do what he had to do. But but where we really spent a lot of time fishing was in BC. What did you take in college? So my undergraduate is a... um, certificate in executive coaching. It was through Royal Roads University. What is executive coaching? Yeah, it's a bit of a fancy, fancy term for, for what it is. But essentially, uh, it's, you know, in, in management, you know, one of your key objectives is to to get results through the organization and through the people you work with. And uh, I reached a point in my career uh, when I was in Kitimat where I, I actually had to decide I was either going to get out of this or I was going to get better at it. You were working in Kitimat? Yeah. I was. I've definitely done a major jump here because I'm so excited I to know. get to Tuna. I know. But, but I, can't, I can't do that to myself got, or yeah. my listeners. So walk me through this. Where, yeah. How did you end up in Kitimat? Yeah, I'll, I'll, st- I'll start uh, kind of at the beginning. Go for I, it. I started in Princeton and, uh, as I said, did a lot of fishing. Got the bug really bad. Uh, my dad would I get him to drop me off when I was about 10 on the highway outside of town in the lakes. And I'd walk the lakes and creeks back at home and meet him at the arena after work, and he'd pick me up. And, and then, of course, when we'd go camping, we'd do tons of fishing. And while I was out there uh, fishing the streams in between the lakes, uh, I'd throw, at the time, I was you know, a little torpedo bobber, red and white, yeah. and uh, fly, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, sometimes, you know, hopper on the end of a hook, that kind of a thing. And I actually one day had a fellow neighbor who, who was probably three or four years older than me. His name was Craig. And I met him on basically on the Merritt Highway. And we, we started talking, and he had a different rod in his hand. He had a fly rod. Ooh, and so it begins. Right. So the pond where I would normally you know, throw my little torpedo out there, the brook trout would just scatter right. when the torpedo hits because yeah. it's you know, a foot and a half deep water. And then they would slowly come back. They'd see your fly, and you'd, you'd catch a trout. And he'd cast out, and his fly would land. The trout would go right to his fly. Right. And that was a that was a big moment right there. It was like, that's how I'm going to fish. So I did what I could to uh, to get my hands on a fly rod and knew nothing, obviously, but made it work. Yeah, probably wore my arm out too many times <laughs> yeah. trying to figure out what I, what I was doing. And But I really enjoyed it. When I was in uh, 
high school. I kept fishing right through school. I met my wife there, so I'm still with uh, Rita, who I met in high school, and and we managed to stick it out and just finished our 20-year anniversary last year, last week. Happy anniversary. Thank you. So um, I was working for, in high school, I worked for the Overwitty Food Group. Oh, okay, uh, yeah. Western-based grocery company, and... Uh, great company to work for and I just spent the last 33 years working with them mm. um, so I, they transferred me uh, out to Edmonton just after I got married spent a couple years there and then an opportunity came up to come down and move into Sparwood right next to Fernie and uh, started started fishing actually I spent more time fishing in Alberta uh, on the crow's nest because I rainbows right mm-hmm. and uh, so Vic Bergman the the operator of the little fly shop there, Crosness Angler, he got to a point where he just said, I think it was summer night too, he says, Ian, he goes, are you going to fish in BC at all? Yeah. Because, I mean, I was getting, you know, 150 days in Alberta. I actually hadn't fished much in BC. So I, I came over after pretty much a year and a half living in Sparwood and actually just started getting into the Elk River and some of the great streams down there. And in about a year, I started guiding there. Was it part-time? Because you're still working at Overweighty at that point. I was working at Overweighty, but you know, I, I, I managed to get a lot of time in the water. And, you know, I think in 92, I had over 100 days by June 1st. Oh my goodness. And you had a full-time job? Well, you know what I did was I used all my holidays and we had these, you know, extra day in lose. And my wife was a dental assistant at the time. I'd actually wait till her schedule was written at work and then I'd write mine so my days off were opposite. And, of course you did. And I'd say, oops. No, there's another day to go go fishing. Why didn't you start thinking about going into the fly fishing industry full-time at that point? I did. I did think about it. I had a lot of people asking me. You know, at the time, Fernie didn't have a fly shop. Right. And there were only two guides on the river, myself and, a, and another guy out of Fernie, who did a lot of gear fishing. So it was really undiscovered, mm-hmm. and you had the place to yourself. And I had given it a lot of thought. But I had in my mind I was going to make a career out of what I was doing. And I also knew that in the industry that I'm in, they move you around a lot. And I had planned to go where the fish were. So I made some nice moves after leaving Sparwood Fernie area that took me to um, some great fishing destinations, which, uh, you know, so... Within the Overweighty Group. Within the Overweighty Food Group, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I moved on from Sparwood and uh, I moved from there up to Kitimat. Why? Well, I was moving on in my career, and the opportunity came up, and uh, I, I knew there'd be good fishing up there. Okay. So, but this is, again, with Overweighty. I stayed with Overweighty for 33 years. That's amazing that they went to so many excellent destinations. They must have gone to a bunch of destinations, and you just handpicked the I, Yeah. Ones. I got asked to go to some of the right ones, and uh, I don't know if the if they knew how much I loved fishing. But um, I was very careful in where I went for the most part. Right. And uh, so I spent, uh, I think, the better part of five or six years in Kitimat. And, of course, um, you know, it's, it's a great river, a uh, little different, you know, winter run steelhead. I caught my first steelhead when I was in Kitimat. Oh, great. Okay. So some good time in Kitimat. Uh, from Kitimat, I went down to Squamish. Oh, another great spot. So Squamish was, I think, about a three-year stay, and uh, I, I, I think I got the most that I could out of that. Um, from Squamish, I went to Kimberley. Uh, the Kimberley stay was really short, and then I was invited to go up and uh, be the general manager for Bulkley Valley Wholesale Smithers. No way. 
Yes. That is so funny. I spend, I do all my shopping there. Right. So we did some great work there. We, we introduced uh, all of the local stuff that you see in there today. Yeah, that's why I shop there. Right. So everything from Meg Hobson's cookies to, you know. Rudolph's sausage. Rudolph's sausage. Yeah. No, we did all that. Cool. Yeah, that cool. was, it was a, it was a, I was going to university the second time that I was getting my master's in business. And what was wonderful is that I had Bulkley Valley as a learning lab. I could go back and I could play. It's a great success story. And, and yeah. the, the support of the local growers and producers is a cornerstone of the success of that business. Now, you said you lived there for six years. I was there for seven years. How did you, why did you get sucked away? I just, I've never met anybody who managed to get sucked away from oh, Smithers. From Smithers, yeah. Well, that's a great question. You know what it came down to was I have uh, I have two boys. They're now 18 and 21. And um, I wanted to make sure that they had an opportunity to get an education. And I wanted them to be able to stay at home. I also had uh, my parents getting older. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was important that I was in a place that I could easily get to my parents if they needed my support. And, and the same for, for my wife, Rita, to, for her mom. And, you know, my dad's in Princeton still. Rita's mom is in Penticton. And, and I'd lost my mom, actually, shortly after I came back, um, which, you know, allowed me a, a bunch of trips out to see her uh, a lot easier than I would have had a Smithers. So, you know, the way I've always looked at it is, uh, you know, I can go back at the best time of the year. You know, Bill Berkland is a fisherman at a, at a Kitimat, and he's, a, he's an old fellow and and uh him and his wife traveled around in fifth wheel and they're on the best river at the best time of the year and then they move on and uh you know that's sort of the way i look at it and i, and I can go back yeah you can and i know where to go i know where to fish i know what time of the year to go and, and if you're there for the fishing and not the berries and the foraging and the mushrooms and stuff then it's really not that long it's of a, a short season, season. <laughs> yeah that's right that's right so it was a really good time to move down Difficult, very difficult to leave, you know, five acres in the country, you know, with kids and dirt bikes and, you know, all that stuff and come in, come back down to, uh, to, uh, reality, reality yeah. right. <laughs> but, it. but, you know, you gotta, you gotta make decisions in life and I have no regrets. No, I've I, never looked back on any one of these moves. I could understand that. That makes sense. Especially when you hit me with the aging parents. I understand. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. 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 Okay. How on earth did we end up here in Richmond at the Ocean's Brand Factory? Right. Or what is this? Is the head office? Yeah. So this is the the office for Ocean Brands, um, a, a brand company that owns the brands Ocean's, yeah, Tuna, and, and not, Gold Seals. And Gold Seal. That's what really threw me off when I started researching you. Is right. Ocean's obviously I've heard of Ocean's. I've been eating it my entire life. Right. Like, you know, canned fish from Ocean's, but. Yeah. I've also been eating Gold Seal my entire life. I, I grew up on it too. Who kn- I didn't know it was the same. Did when? Well, you know, I'll, we'll get there. Let's start from the beginning. How did you end up here first and foremost? Yeah. So in October of uh, last year, uh, I had my president from the Overweighty Food Group, uh, Daryl Jones, ask me if I was interested in potentially uh, coming over to Ocean Brands as part of their succession plan for. To long-term uh, opportunity to, to lead the business and uh, it's a fishing company and they deal in fish and uh, these are the brands and and uh, you know if you're if you if you think it's something you'd like to do you know give it some thought and let me know and I'll pass it on to the right people 
And so, full disclosure here, Ocean Brands is a part of the Jim Pattison Group, just as Overweighty Fit Group is. I figured it might be. I was going to ask you, because he owns all the licenses, I thought. No. Well, see, and this is why we're doing this podcast. Let's just let's just paint the picture for the listener. So I get this email from this humble man a couple days ago, and he says, I can't believe we haven't run into each other. I listened to your show. Some interesting stuff. Um, would love to be a guest on the show to talk about conservation. And my response was short, but to the point of, yeah, and, you know, <laughs> what are your credentials? Who, what do you stand for? And then I get this email, because I love explaining this to the listener. <laughs> then I get this email back with a very detailed description from Ian Ricketts, who's the vice president of Ocean Brand, and also an article from that was recently run in the paper about this fascinating forward thinking that we're about to talk about in just a minute. But the reason why I'm really laying this out for the listeners, I've really only had, I mean, when did we decide we were going to do this? Yesterday? Yeah. About 24 hours on the right. internet. Right. <laughs> we're right. trying to pack for a trip to be like, oh my God, what do they do? What's going on in the tuna industry? Right. What are the standards? But then in my head when I was driving here, I was like, wait a second. They do all of their fishing offshore, like, out, like closer to Australia, which we'll talk about later. They don't actually do the fishing here, close to Vancouver. And then I was like, well, Jimmy, Pattison's all, Jimmy Pattison owns all the fishing licenses. Is that tuna? Is that salmon? I mean, straighten me up here. Yeah, so on the uh, salmon side, which I probably won't spend much time on. Because is the gold seal salmon a salmon that's harvested closer to home? Yes, the gold seal salmon, as, as is most salmon commercially that you see sold, in supermarkets, both fresh, frozen, and canned, the majority of it all comes out of out of Bristol Bay, Alaska. Yeah, and uh, and it's a very well managed fishery. Uh, I, I've I've only been observing it, of course, for you know the last nine months, mm-hmm. but I'm very impressed by you know what Alaska Fishing Game is is doing, as well as uh, Washington uh, University. There, they play a big part in it. Some pretty smart people, and they've been very, you know, proactive in in how they're managing the fishery. I can't say that I've seen any other fishery managed as well. Oh, that's great. Okay, for Alaska, and and just for clarity, um, non-residents of the U.S. can't hold those licenses. Oh, okay. So it's not like we're stealing all the. It's a U.S. resident has to hold the license. Okay, got it. Yeah. So Jimmy Pattison does not own those licenses. No, that's not correct. Does he own any fishing licenses? I don't know. Um, I, I, I don't have those details. I, I do Jimmy on the show. Yeah. Yeah. And I try not to speak for Jimmy. It's, it's of a course. Good. No. And please don't. Don't speak for Jimmy. Um, but that's okay. Let's, let's move forward. So lead me through how this comes into tuna because that's really where your expertise is. Right. Right. Let's focus on that. So when I came on board, you know, you do a size up of the company that you're looking at becoming a part of. And there's a lot of things you look at. I came from a company that had very, very sound values um, of giving back, of being responsible with customers and having a very positive public image. And, uh, you know, they just, they were great to work for. They've done a tremendous job giving back to the communities. And they really uh, have a very rich history in the West in all the communities. I needed to feel comfortable about where this business was going and to get a good feeling for, you know, what's important. And it was really easy to see early on that there were some efforts to focus on 
you know, the long-term sustainability of this tuna industry and our, and our oceans, including salmon. And where that showed up for me was little things like in 2012, they were founding members of the Poland Line, in, uh, you know, of, of the International Poland Line. And that meant that they were, they were making it possible to bring tuna to the market that was caught the most sustainable way that you can catch tuna. Can we Still talk today. about that a little bit? Because I, I looked up Poland Line. For sure. And I expected to see a guy out there with a Shimano yeah. rod and a pen reel. Right. And I saw like an actual pole. like a It looked like a stick. Yeah. And I'm assuming line. Yeah. I didn't see any reels. Line. Am no I seeing that right? It's like 10 kara. It, it is, right? It is. Can you just explain? But when we're saying Poland Line... Because um, I'm assuming there's other people out there who don't know this, right. like, like I did not know right. this. Can you just explain exactly what the process is? Sure, sure. So, so one thing we'll get into is is uh, the problem of bycatch. If you're a fisherman and you fish in coastal waters, you understand what bycatch is from a commercial fishing uh, effort. And uh, in tuna fishing, certain methods produce a high degree of bycatch. Pole line is on the far end of the spectrum of being the most responsible way to catch tuna because the bycatch is literally zero. And the way it becomes zero is that they use methods and gear, uh, pull and line, a, a single person with a pole <laughs> right. and a line and a special hook that actually doesn't barb or go into the fish. It just catches the fish enough that if tension is kept on it, they can lift it up and pull it over their shoulder and into the boat and into a hold. Is that circle hooks you're speaking of? No, that's not circle hooks. It, that's a special type of hook that they use just for for um, pulling line. Okay. But essentially, you don't want the fish to stay on the hook. You want to be able to lift the, have them take the, the, the bait that you have on there, lift Waste them out of the water, and just the inertia of them moving, it's kind of like having a, you know, catching a fish. We've all caught a small trout that's too small and set the hook, and it Flies behind, flies behind you. Because when I looked at the article that was written, I saw the photo right. of the guy's pole, pole and lining. Right. And a tuna kind of midair. Yes. And I thought, that's very strange. Because yeah. I do a lot of tuna fishing in Australia. Yeah. They can't stop moving, right? They, you're right. They don't stop moving. They, they I mean, they're, they're uh, machines when it comes to eating. Right. They're predators, right? Yeah. And they grow really fast. Right. Uh, they're very resilient. So I think they're pretty hyper. So do they just kind of, as you're pulling lining and hoisting them in, they must just kind of shake off and they're that's, shaking. That's exactly it. That's okay. exactly it. You're just relieving a bit of the tension and they, they come off the hook and back to you go to, you go to fishing. Are there weights? No. Well, there's the weight of the hook, but it's mostly happening right at the surface. So, you know, they have a technique of bringing the boat out to an area where they'll see a bait ball or they'll see fish feeding. They use binoculars a lot of times for this. Look for birds. Look for birds, exactly, just what we would do. Mm-hmm. And uh, bring the boat up to the area. They'll start fishing on it, and they'll use water jets off the boat to sort of distract the fish, and it kind of adds to the feeling of there's feed, yeah. feed and chaos <laughs> yeah. and keeps the fish interested. Right. And, of course, you've got you know maybe 25, 30 people off the bow of a boat you know, throwing their lines and... Uh, you know, flicking these fish into the boat. And the wonderful thing about it is, is that it doesn't catch the the traditional bycatch of things like turtles yeah, no. or sharks 
or juvenile fish because the hooks are such a size that the juvenile fish don't get caught. But why are the, and just excuse me here, I'm so excited talking about this because I've experienced this and I know what it's like. The water is white. There's bait everywhere. There's scales everywhere. The birds are going crazy. But usually those tuna are are eating little fish. Why are they just taking the hooks? Because the the hooks have little fish bait on them. Okay, so they are baited. Yes, sometimes imitations too. Okay, got it. Yeah. Okay, so then, I mean, it's impossible to catch a shark or a turtle like that. Well, it doesn't happen. Historically, did they throw nets for tuna? So so there's different ways of catching tuna. Now, pull line tuna is a very responsible way of catching fish, and, and we sell pull line tuna under, under ocean brands, under oceans. Unfortunately, there are not enough people fishing that way, and it is not as affordable as regularly caught tuna. Because it takes more labor, obviously. Yes, it takes more labor. And so we have to strike a balance. You know, when pole and line was introduced roughly in around 2012 to the to the market, we were the first to bring pole and line. We watched it carefully. But how many hundreds of years were they doing pole and line? Pole and line goes back years and years and years. It would like, have had to. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll, we'll get into that when we start talking about, uh, about fads. But... You know, pull, introducing pull online to the Canadian consumer was great. And it was viewed largely as, you know, introducing a few sustainable or responsibly caught types of tuna to meet the needs, almost the lifestyle needs, of a few consumers that were really picky about how their food is sourced. Yeah, like this one right here. Now, right, right. Not, we're not talking bluefin. We're not talking the thousands of dollars. For no. the Japanese market. We're talking what kind? This is skipjack that we're talking about. And, you know, skipjack, like Canadians love their tuna. They eat $198 million worth of it a year. No way, seriously. Oh, they love their tuna. Huh. So what we believe is that it's no longer acceptable to have a few types of responsibly caught tuna in the category to meet the lifestyle needs of a few people, but that all tuna should be responsibly caught. And, and I'll get into the methods, but... The reality is this: if we, if the grocer says, "Well, I got to wait till consumers want to buy it," so what we're saying is that we have to educate 35 million people. By the time we get that done, the fishery will be finished. On the legislation side, well, we know that government is not able to completely protect the fishery. But how does our our government's not even part of this because the fishing's being done right elsewhere? There's different government bodies that manage the fisheries in the West Central Pacific, but you're dealing with managing around 80 country flags and how they fish. So it's very difficult to think of the the possibility of us legislating a certain way of fishing. It's up to the packers, the brands, and the retailers to decide that this is the right thing to do. I was going to hit that hit you up about that later, but my big in reading your email twice and then reading the article, the big red flags that were waving in my head were you guys need to get the retailers on board and just basically have it so that they only carry because the consumer will hop on board after after they understand that the retailers have hopped on board. Does that sound right? Or it's a, is it, it's a bit of chicken and egg. Yeah, it's a bit of chicken and egg. In fairness, the retailers are actually. Uh, getting more and more on board. But the consumer now has a choice. They can choose a responsibly caught product or one that's not responsibly caught, but they don't know necessarily what the difference is. And the default response is usually whatever's the cheapest in the category. 
So let's break that down now. Talk to me about before 2012. Tell me the history of commercially harvested tuna. So tuna, <clears throat> traditionally, aside from you know some, some island communities fishing pole online, and, and some small persanes, are, are caught using a persane net, which is acceptable. But what makes it damaging is that the fishing is occurring on what's called a fad. Mm-hmm. A, a fish, fish, agg- a fish aggregation device. Oh, so right. kind of like we'd fish in a lake yeah. and we'd look for structure. And we know there's going to be trout around there. This is the same principle on an industrial scale. Attach sonar to it so that you can, from miles away, determine you know how many tons of fish are around it and whether you should go over and fish on that fad. And the problem is, is that the fads, because they create a little ecosystem of you know habitat, they attract everything. And the result is uh, too much bycatch to be sustainable for the ocean. If you were netting underneath them. If you're netting on a fad. Okay, yeah, that just sounds like a nightmare. Yeah, so bycatch, uh, the amount of fish caught non-targeted species, is upwards of 10%. Now, it's not always 10%. Sometimes it might be higher, but the studies, not my studies, but scientific studies, you know, say that it's it hovers around that 8%. Ugh. And pole line fishing is roughly zero. Now, the missing piece is something in the middle, something that is very responsible, that almost reduces the bycatch to pole line, but that makes the tuna responsibly caught but also affordable. So, right. it, so it meets the needs of all the consumers, not just ones that have the ability and means to pay for a bit more for tuna. So what we do we've chosen to do over the last 10 years is work with fishermen to change how they fish. We're changing how they fish. We're changing the gear they use. And the way that we've achieved that is working with NGOs like the Nature Conservatory, primarily with Greenpeace, with Pole Line Federation, and, and, and others, World Wildlife Fund, to change how they fish. When you say they, are you talking mostly people from Thailand? Where are, where are most of your anglers coming from? Your island fishermen, your fishermen come from, from everywhere. They, they, you know, they have rules and regulations that they have to follow, but they, they come from a lot of different flagged countries. Um, and our objective here was to change how they fish. So what we did was we worked with Greenpeace to find acceptable methods uh, that are research-backed to reduce bycatch. So what we use is a method called fad-free fishing. Mm-hmm. Essentially, it's the same as pole and line. You're going out and you're looking for a ball of fish that are feeding on bait, you know, getting out the binoculars, racing over, and while adult, mature, harvestable tuna are feeding, you're catching them using a small purse seine net, but you're not catching all the bycatch that would be attracted. So it's harder to catch those fish because you've got to find them. It's like hunting. You've actually got to go find these fish. And then you need to, you know, catch them. And you don't know how big uh, a mass of fish is there. So, you know, the, the efforts are a lot harder. But the result is, is that the bycatch from fishing fad-free, or what we call free swimming or free school, is less than 1%. Okay, and this is where I got lost in the email. You guys are using the net yes. on free swimmers, right? Not using pole and line on free swimmers. We use both. Okay, because that was where I got lost when I was reading the email. I thought, well, why not just? Because I'm very familiar with that. Yeah, why not just pole and line fish? Well, why not just pole and line fish with the fad? 
is where I was at because I would, couldn't, and I know that it was glaringly obvious why this is why there's an answer, right. here, but I couldn't find it because right. I guess maybe I'm biased because I, I see I do so much fad fishing myself in Australia. Yeah, so 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 you have some experience and and you're 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 bang on. So pole line fishermen will often fish on an, what's called an anchored fad. So if you go back to the way that the island fishermen used to fish for sustenance, they would actually build little rafts and stuff just off the edge of the island so they yeah. could go fish around it, catch their fish, go home and feed their families. This is essentially the same thing, but they're anchored. The commercial fishing I'm referring to, which is fishing on fads, they're drifting fads. They have markers on them, and you can pick up where they are, and you can buzz over to this one and fish off of it and catch your fish, but also your bycatch, and you can go over to this one. And, you know, they're, they're introduced illegally uh, and legally into the Pacific Ocean. So, you know, Greenpeace pulls a lot of them out of the water. Oh, because um, it's basically just litter. Litter. So we're not talking the fads I'm used to. No. Or, like, we use the big tankers as fads. You know, they're enormous fads. Well, anything in the water creates a fad. Like, if yeah. you have a boat in the water. If there's a log in the water, it's a fad. It's technically, a fad. Yeah. Technically, it is, yeah. So there's a lot of different um, discussion around what's a fad and what's a good fad versus a bad fad. And, and so when we talk about fad-free fishing, we're really talking about the per se fishery and fishing on fads or not on fads. Mm-hmm. And the, the wonderful thing is, is that we're learning that using the per se fishing method allows the fishermen to earn a living and also fish responsibly because we're getting bycatch that's well below 1%. How many feet is the why is it penetrating in the water when you're using a per se net? You know, it's a good question. Um, I, I honestly don't have the answer to that yet. Again, you know, being, being, um, you know, eight months in, I'm 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 working with Greenpeace regularly, and of course our team's here, and uh, I don't have the answer to that. That's okay, we'll get it. But yeah, why not the bycatch? Because I'm just thinking when I've seen tuna bait balls, there's always, you know, there's always other fish underneath feasting on the tuna. Yeah. So how are you the per seines? Uh, what is a per se net? Is it is it just is it a net with? I mean, I guess I'm just wondering how it doesn't get bycatch. In it. Well, it, the bycatch is reduced to 1%. less than 1%. Yes. So what, what it really does is that the fad attracts sharks and other sea turtles and mammals and that. Okay, so you're, you don't have the problem of as many species because you just don't have the fad there. Right. You're not going to get a marlin in a... Yeah, so what we have is we have, uh, we have obser- observers, third-party observers okay. that we pay for Yeah. that are um, certified. They're not tied to the fishery on every one of our boats. Really? To make sure that the fishing is done correctly, and you know they're observing if what bycatch is, you know how bad it is. Is it falling under the one percent? Are they fishing away from the fads that uh, they're not supposed to be near? Yeah. So so we we work with an association, a third party that's globally recognized and and uh, recognized by Greenpeace as well to be on the, all of those vessels, one hundred percent coverage. Coming up, Ian and I continue our discussion about the industry and its practices. Again, don't miss out on Flygal's sale at www.flygal.ca. Between the 25% off code and the American conversion, you could be saving close to 50%. Just enter code SHOP25, that's SHOP25 at checkout. We don't expect items to last much longer. I've got to throw some random questions out. For sure. How many cans of tuna can one tuna make? <laughs> Sounds like the beginning of a tongue twister. Wow, well. Because what do they average? They average a couple feet long? How yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Three feet, two, you know, two feet to three feet. So how many cans of tuna do you think you'd get out of one fish? That's a great question. I don't know. I don't know the Are they specific about what parts of the fish go into it? Yeah, I think there's about, uh, you know, when you take off, you know, the non-edible parts of a fish, just like you would a salmon. Uh, I think in a tuna's case, you're getting recovery of around, I, th- I think it's around 60%. Okay, what happens to the other 40%? Uh, certain products, byproducts are used to make different products. Oh, that like occurs in the salmon fishery too. Pet food, where would it go? Um, you know, it's a great question. I don't know exactly where all of it goes, but I know, it, you know, there's oils that are made. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, I'd be curious like to see where that goes. I'm sure they have a use for it. They're being use for it. Yeah, the tuna fishery, those factories that produce that are very efficient. There's not much that goes to waste, mm-hmm. right? I mean, they have, you know, bones are going into, you know, a lot of it is going into vitamins and minerals and things of that nature that I've seen. Mm-hmm. I would have gone into this interview Fish really, oils. really skeptical, but because we work in, my husband works in chickens, we work yeah. in chicken factories. Um, so I know that a lot of the, the the rest of the oh, bird is is used. I'm sure tuna would be the same way. Yeah, recovery is pretty important. Um, more questions. How many workers per boat do you have? You said at some point there's 15 or 16 on the bow of the boat. Well, on a pole, if they're on a, pole and line. On a pole and line boat, you know, uh, I've seen you know where you have 20. It's pretty pretty impressive to watch. I mean, How many for the saners? Because it must be cutting the cost down substantially. Yeah, saners, you're dealing with you know. I mean, there's got to be like a dozen people on the boat. I, I don't know the exact number, but it's certainly not as uh, beneficial to from a from a social standpoint as it would be for pulling line because right. you're 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 hiring a lot more people in that sense. And then, of course, you still have the laborers back at the factory, which you would have in 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 any case for the canning, right? Now they do all the processing there. I'm assuming. Um, quite often, fish are frozen. Mm-hmm. And uh, collected, and then and tracked, and everything's ID'd. Everything has uh, you can trace a fish right back to the boat it was caught and where it was caught. Each individual fish. Every can of tuna. Where are the serial numbers on this thing? Yeah, so there's numbers on every can of tuna. No kidding. Oh yeah, yeah. The trace back to exactly where it was caught, when it was caught, the boat it was okay, caught on. Hold on, too much information. Walk <laughs> yeah. So Joe Blow, our guy from Thailand, goes out. He's going out fishing today. Tell me this tuna's life. This tuna bites the bites the hook. Right. Gets thrown in the boat. Right. It's been caught by your Thai guy. Right. Excellent. It gets back to the factory. Is this one processed there or is it frozen? Um, well, fish are, are depends on on the type of fishing. So if it's a if it's a pull in line, it's quite often a day catch. Like it's gone out that day, come back that day, or next day kind of thing. You, you need to get fish back. I mean, of preserving the quality of the fish is really important. Yeah. Um, you have other boats that have the ability to hold them at a colder temperature for a little bit longer. Ah. And um, so this is a loaded question because it could be it's totally dependent on the on the fishermen. Right. Okay. So say that it's going back to a factory in Thailand. Yes. So it gets processed. Right. Obviously, the factories employ people, so there's work here. Yep. It's brined in either water or oil, I'm assuming? Mostly water. Okay. And then it gets canned. Where is this? Is it stamped? Is it like an expiration stamp kind of thing? Yeah. So I've been in all of our canneries and uh, the ones that we buy from. We don't own them. We tell them how we want the product canned. We provide the spec for how we want the fish treated, handled, cleaned, recorded, that sort of thing. Uh, so the fish are caught. They, uh, they're brought in. They go into you know a 
into the factory where they're processed and they're graded like anything else would be. And then they are cleaned, and there's different stages of cleaning, um, just like you would imagine. Too. Sounds like chickens. It's it's probably very similar. And, uh, you know, the quality is, is very important to manage. And, of course, different countries and different regions have different quality standards. So there's hundreds of differences of spec on how these fish are, are cleaned. For instance, albacore that comes to Canada is double cleaned. It's the whitest, most beautiful albacore that you'll find. And if you were to buy that same albacore in the U.S., you'll find that it's not nearly as, as good. Because of the Canadian standards when because they Canadian purchase standards. it. Yeah. Why albacore? Over skipjack? Actually, the standard for, for skipjack in the U.S. is quite a bit different, too, than ours. The standard in, in, in the U.S., if you're to buy skipjack, it's almost like soup. It's really watery. It's, what? Well, are, but are our skipjack in Canada, are they also double washed? Uh, the double cleaning is, is, a, is referenced to albacore. Okay. Uh, skipjack itself is, is, is cleaned almost the same way. But what's interesting about tuna is that there's different colors of meat in every fish. So they will grade them uh, as, they've, as they're cleaning them, and the Canadian spec will have a certain color and certain quality to it. A lot of the really dark tuna goes to the Middle East. That's what they prefer. Canadians love their white albacore tuna, right. and it's like double-cleaned white, and then the darker meat would go to a different country. Uh, so there's it's, no waste. It just it gets... It, it's distributed pers- differently. Right. So... If you go to, to the U.S. today and open up a can of albacore, it won't be as white as ours. Right. And if you open up the skipjack anywhere in the U.S., it'll be really watery. It's, it's almost like soup in a can, tuna soup. I mean, is uh, it a price thing? Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. The, con- the U.S. consumers actually reduce their tuna consumption because they're not happy with the quality. And any of the growth occurring in the U.S. right now is coming from the premium end of tuna. Um, in skipjack, good quality skipjack and good quality albacore. Because you said our number is 190 what? But $198 million worth of tuna is purchased by Canadians every year. And in America, do you know those numbers? I don't, but, you know, to give you an idea... It's hard because of the population difference, too, though. Yeah, so to give you an idea, Canada represents about under 5% of all the tuna consumption in the world. Well, you know, in all my travels, it's, it's funny. I mean, even in Sri Lanka, there's just... There's tuna everywhere. You yeah. go to Bali, it's, there's tuna everywhere. Well, tuna is a very important fish for the world. It, it really is, yeah. It, it's, it's a very important fish for a lot of countries for their diet. Some of their diets make up, are made up by 40% fish. Tuna is very, very important. And, and that's why you know, I'm, I'm wanting to talk about this. When Greenpeace had its tuna ranking come out a few weeks ago, and ocean brand tuna moved up to fourth from its ninth position based on some of the work we've done. And the, the three brands ahead of us were, I would call them born, um, born green, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're small niche brands. They're doing, you know, they're really, really good companies. Um, they've just taken a position of only doing their pull line and that makes them quite niche in that respect. But I had somebody ask me, you know, you've moved from ninth to fourth. That's really good. <laughs> what are you doing to get to number one? And, you know, I, I provided a polite answer, but the reality is this. This is not about becoming number one on somebody's list. Greenpeace is going to continue to raise the bar, and it's not about just meeting, you know, that bar. This is a lot bigger. By 2050, the population of this earth is going to move from 7.3 billion to 9.3. And based on current demand... Our fisheries, our oceans, will not be able to sustain it. The numbers are, 
we will need three oceans to meet our needs. And bycatch is such a huge waste. What we're doing here is trying to change the way Canadian consumers buy tuna. We want them to understand that there's choice in the category and that the choices they make, one by one, change the way tuna is caught on the other side of the world. And, you know, we've, I know you've had this conversation with others, but it comes up, of course, you know, well, my, my, my few cans of tuna, what does that change? I can tell you that Canada globally is seen as a leading country. We're regarded very highly in, in many nations. And as a matter of fact, many of the canneries in different parts of the world would love nothing more than to say that they pack tuna for can, the Canadian consumer. So when the Canadian consumer demands a responsibly caught tuna and they start making choices, it changes how tuna is caught. This is so cool. Because I will be honest with you, there, especially when I was in my 20s, I ate a lot of tuna. To me, it was like tuna's tuna. I used to avoid buying oceans because you guys were so beautiful, but you guys were the name brand. Right. So I'd go for the non-name brand because it was 99 cents a can. Yeah. So talk to me about the price difference. You guys average what for per can now? Yeah. So, look, we, we don't control the retail price that, that the grocery stores put on our tuna. What we control is our cost and, 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 and what we ask for. We pay fishermen about three to five cents more a can to fish the way we want them to fish. Which I know adds up. Three to five cents is huge. It's huge. Wow, okay. It's, a, it's, it's the biggest commitment that Ocean Brands has made, and we're doing it because we think long-term this is the right thing to do. The company's been around for, for quite a while, and you and I are going to be here in 2050. And we're going to be here to see uh, where we're at and, and how well we've looked after this. So we, we believe in a long-term view of business, and... That means we, we need to look ahead. And, and we know for a fact that what we're doing is the right thing to do. And we'll continue to look at different types of fishing methods that continually move us closer and closer to zero bycatch. And we'll work with NGOs to be able to do that. Uh, we'll increase the amount of pole and line fishing we'll do, of course, as much as we possibly can. Uh, as, as a, just a, a matter of fact, there isn't enough pole and line fishing going on. There aren't enough people doing it to actually meet the needs. So we continue to look for ways to grow that, and we work with partners that are expanding those fisheries. So this is really important. This is not about you know being a little higher in somebody's list. This is about making sure that we're uh, we're taking care of the ocean, and and this is a small part. You know, Australia. Is already there. So John West took the lead in Australia. So we work with John West. We do. Yeah, well, it's kind of like your peer network, right? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, hey, we're working on this. You're working on this. What are you learning? And we absolutely share, you know, key learnings. And uh, so we work closely with, with other brands and companies that um, are on the same path. So Australia is there. And actually, you know, I, I won't disclose one of the brands there, but one of the brands there just recently made the change. They made the commitment last month uh, under a lot of pressure to finally, you know, switch over. So now Australia is pretty much 100% fishing fad-free. Pressure by whom? NGOs. Okay. I've got some questions for you about business before I dive into how you're going to do this marketing-wise. From a business stance, you say that you work with a factory. Right. 
and they're a supplier for other companies. Right. Okay. So how do you make sure that the tuna that are being caught for you yes. are being caught responsibly yes. when, for all you know, they're selling to Joe Blow Tuna Cup Factory? Right. That's that's a great question. With dynamite. Yeah. And, and, and that's a great question. So traceability in the tuna industry is utmost important. Sounds like that. You really got me with this stamping cans. And, and it doesn't sound like you're just stamping cans. It sounds like you're stamping fish. Well, when a fish is caught and, you know, you have to hold them, so you hold them like you would a salmon or anything like that, like that. you've got a, a tote that you would you would store them in, like it's like a, you know, a, a bit of a container, and they hold, you know, maybe it's a 500 pounds of fish, and that tote is ID'd from the boat that it came from, from the captain that was on the boat, oh. the date that it was caught, and that tag becomes part of the ID, and then as it moves along, it gathers more information, you know, where it's processed, the line it was processed on, all of the detail. So when we receive our shipments, we, we, have, we have inspection that occurs uh, at where it's being packed, uh, An inspection is just to ensure that there's a lot of um, technical stuff that's met first, and then we do inspection here as well. But we record and we track every can code before it's even left port where it's being packed and that goes into our system it arrives we reconcile with it we know that we have that product we we, within three minutes we can trace any can in canada where it's at wow okay right so that's that you're getting into food safety now Mm -hmm. but um within three minutes we can track where a product is in canada oh my goodness this is incredible but say that they're selling to five companies or there you know there's five main brands right and you guys are the only ones who are doing this responsibly but you're paying them an extra 3 to 5 cents right you got somebody on board so you're making sure that it's being done as it should be right so a third party is on board bureau veritas is the is the uh, company that we use okay great is there a way to somehow make the system so manageable that the other four companies can also jump on board this sustainable technique yeah so i'm so glad you asked that because this is not a marketing stunt for oceans to sell more tuna. This is a movement to change how people purchase fish for Canada and how the consumer buys it. We want all of the brands to be moving over to this. Yeah. That's really important. It's really important. Now, there are some that are are making the move, that are making the move over. Um, Not enough, but we're getting close. We're getting close. We, we need to have everybody move over, though. We need to be Australia or New Zealand or Germany where fad-caught fish with all that bycatch doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. What the consumer can do today to help move that is to look for tuna in the category that is clearly marked how it's caught. Because right. all tuna that's responsibly caught is supposed to identify how it's caught. Okay. So right on the label... If you look, and not in, you know, mice-type font, you will actually see pull in line or free swimming. Okay, so free swimming means no fads. That's right. See, and I always just thought free swimming was a marketing stunt. And I was like, well, no shit, it's free swimming. Everything's free swimming. This I know. It's totally different. I know. You know, the jargon is difficult. It's it's complex. So, you know, how do you communicate that to consumers? And free school is often referred to it sort of a similar name and then we also have uh, a brand or one of our one of our products that is called circle hook caught right yeah what's that all about yeah so circle hook 
is referring to a different fish method, which is long lining. And long lining is basically putting a big tether out with a lot of little lines that come off of it and a single hook. Last I checked, that was highly frowned upon. Right. Why? Couple things. Um, if you, there's, there's, there's ways to mitigate uh, bycatch with that method, which I'll get into, and that's the circle hook. So when you lay that line out, there's a couple things you have to be careful of. You need to be fishing below the surface because seabirds. Of course. Yeah, and they, right. they will you, take. Like you know. I mean, oh, hooking one of those makes my stomach upset. Right, right. Let and alone hooking 50 of them down the line. Right, and, and you know from casting you know, in the salt that you're, you're always on the lookout for birds and you're on the lookout for turtles too, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, they come up fast and all of a sudden you've got to stop fishing. Yeah. So the long line needs to be at the right level so yeah. that the birds can't get it. You also want to be long line fishing in areas where there is no breeding of anything going on. You, you don't want mammals breeding in the area because they're going to be in the surface area of the water. So you have to be careful with that. You're looking to be in certain zones at certain times of the year. Quite often long lining is done at night too because that's when you don't have birds flying around as much and there's less activity you know, in the surface area of the water. So the biggest difference though to uh, reducing bycatch in a long line, and it's reducing it uh, dramatically, is the use of a circle hook. Mm. And a circle hook is, if you think of a J-hook, most hooks come out of Japan, and it's a standard hook. has a barb. A J-hook actually tips over at the point and curves back to the shank and then down. And what that does is, those, there's bait, there's fish bait on all of those hooks, is it allows uh, non-targeted species, if they approach that, to be able to rip that off and not get hooked up. And there's been a lot of studies by the WWF, uh, World Wildlife Fund, to really measure the effectiveness of this. Like, mm-hmm. is it is it working or is it not working? And they're saying it's working. It's actually dramatically reducing bycatch. So, How come the tuna get hooked? It's a great question. I, I, I think it really comes down to, you know, the size of the tuna, the size of the hook. You know, the net result is, is bycatch is reduced. I haven't actually, you know, in eight months been able to see it for myself firsthand. But, um, you know, we've had good discussions with Greenpeace on it and WWF, WWF is endorsing it. And they're leaders. I mean, they're working with John West. They're working with others. I mean, it's, um, it's science-based results. Um, I'm sure as I spend more time, yeah, I can't uh, believe you've only been here eight months. Yeah, well, big steep learning curve, you know. When you when you you care about fish, mm-hmm. you know. I grew up fishing, and it's it's close to my heart. You know, I've never killed a steelhead. I'm you know keeping my fish wet now, and good, and, good. Uh, you know, I, I, it just makes sense. Yeah, right. We we have to evolve. We have to, and I'm going to ask you about that. But I have another question about tuna. Sure. <laughs> Sorry, it's just so interesting. Yeah. Cans of tuna and cost. Yeah. I understand. Um, like we don't need to dive into exact numbers, but sure. when when you look at buying an ocean, I'm just speaking to the consumer now, and myself included. Yeah. In buying one of your cans of tuna in Save On Foods, sure. What am I looking at to pay for for a can of tuna? You know, a can of skipjack is going to, um, you know, on a regular price. You know, you're probably going to see it around. Uh, Seventy nine, mm-hmm. somewhere in there. Still really affordable. And then, what about the cheaper, the non ethical brands? How much are they selling for? Yeah, so you'll see a lot of them very heavily advertised. You know, in between uh, you know eighty eight and ninety nine. That ninety nine price point, it's the threshold. It's 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 the you, you once you break that line, you know, you lose a, a large group of the consumers because um, 
you know, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a big threshold to cross. I thought I was paying for the brand 110%. I always just thought I was paying for the well-known brand. I had no idea that there was so much into it. So for an extra 70 cents, you could. Well, when I say 99, I'm saying on special. Like, oh, okay. There's there's other brands out there that at a regular price are you know a parity with ours. In in some channels we call channels grocery channels, uh, we're cheaper. In some channels we're we're actually cheaper by twenty cents. Okay, got it. And there's so many variables. I won't pick your brain about. Yeah, that. and and you know we don't control what the retailers price. do. No, no, we don't. We 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 think it's right to pay a little bit more to have fish caught this way. We also think it's right that everybody does. It really is just a little bit more. That's the reality here. You know, April is we're, we're trying to create a movement in Canada where it's no longer acceptable to buy yeah. uh, tuna that's not responsibly caught. It's just the time has come. It's Canada's time. Why don't they just add five cents on to when they're selling it to the retailer and retailers add five cents on when they sell it to the consumer? Yeah. I mean, even in Bali and Sri Lanka... Five cents is not much. Right. Well, I think the answer, the short answer to that is, um, you may not know this, the listeners may not know this, but the Canadian grocery industry is one of the most competitive grocery industries in the world. Um, It is certainly more competitive than the U.S. Uh, I did not know that. Yeah, it actually is. Um, I mean, you've seen Target come into Canada and have a tough time, Um, maybe for other reasons, but... The reality is, is that this is not an attractive market to come into for U.S. retailers. It's very, very hard, and uh, we're very spread out. Uh, the cost of distribution is high. Uh, the growth of our country is not really, really high. Uh, you have European retailers coming in, like uh, Aldi, Little, um, and uh, Walmart is turning up the heat. You've also got the big elephant in the room is Amazon. Oh, that's right. Amazon just bought Whole Foods. That is right. Just sat next to a guy in an airplane. We spoke about this for three hours. Right. Yeah. Right. So the grocery industry is is going through a very uh, disruptive period right now. And everybody is, the retailers are all looking to, to you know, look at their future and make Lower sure. Costs. Right. So. Five cents matters when it's a dollar seven or when it's 99 cents. Right. Damn. Okay. Right. So, okay. so, you know, the consumer plays a bigger part here. You know, we, we, we there are companies like John West mm-hmm. and ourselves that are bringing these responsibly caught products to the market. And in order for the inertia of, of what our efforts to, to grow and to eventually get it to the point where, you know, it just it's the way tuna is bought and caught. We need a movement. We need a movement of Canadians willing to say, you know what, that's important. What about your marketing? Do you guys do television? You, we do marketing. Um, you know, the I, I, from observing marketing today on sustainability, one of the things that's interesting, it's a bit of a paradox, is that if you're paying five cents more a can, you probably have less to advertise. That's true, yeah. Right. What about sending out a camera, just a down-to-earth, organic, raw, you know, 10-minute YouTube clip right. from the guy on the boat, the third party on the boat? Right, right. So I, I think that's where, you, you know, you got to go. And, and, and obviously social media is a very powerful tool today. Totally. And tra- and you, traditional marketing I tried is, finding you guys on social. 
did I miss something? Are you on there? Yeah, it's 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 a little hidden, right? It's um, I think um, at the inception of this organization at the time, you know, on the internet and everything, I think they they picked up uh, a different URL, and so instead of it being under in you know, Ocean Brands, you would have to you would have to look at Ocean's Tuna. Oh, okay, got it. Uh, and uh, or Ocean Seafood. Do you guys sell in the states? We don't. This is just in Canada. It's in Canada only. This is incredible. I had no idea. Well, I give you my word that from now on I will buy my tuna through you guys when I'm here, and through John West when I'm in Australia. Yeah. And um, will you keep? What are your plans for the next? I mean, you've only been here less than a year. Right. Do you have a grand scheme? You're still really young. I mean, technically, you could. There's so much room for you to grow. Right. Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Uh, our plan, you know, from a responsible side of the business, you know, we, we've done a lot, but we've still got a lot of work to do. Um, I want to be clear on that. We have a lot of work to do. You know, some key things we're looking at doing is is, is uh, working with our albacore fishery to um, really get good intelligence on any bycatch that's occurring there and look for ways to mitigate it, working with the NGOs. We are looking to increase the amount of pull line we put into the market. And, of course, we're looking to communicate to all of our Canadian consumers um, just how important it is and what opportunity they have to help make this shift. And I'd really like to see us, you know, by the end of 18 to be exactly where Australia is. There's just a zero tolerance for purchasing tuna that isn't responsibly caught. Consumers can also consult the Greenpeace 2017 tuna audit. And, you know, that way they're getting it firsthand from an NGO that, you know, that they can um, ask questions to. We, you know, we advise them to do that. So when they're in the category, look for those key, those key phrases of free swimming, free school, pull in line, or soaker hook caught. If you don't see that on the can, then it's, you don't want to buy it. I want to see it stamped in enormous letters on top of every can from right, now on. Right, right. I understand, that's, and that, that's a stick. That's a sticker. There's another five cents a can. Well, and it's it's not necessarily a sustainable, right? You know, right. You're adding more packaging. No, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I know, but it would, yeah. But it would be nice to to have it really, really clear because I I will, I know myself and others. We just look at the price below it. I know, I know. Because tuna's just always been tuna. Yeah. Well, you know what? More. If you stop and think about it, we're talking three to five cents a can, and quite often a can of tuna is cheaper than a chocolate bar. Right, so we just need to change that habit. As far as the business goes and expanding and, and, and some of our plans, I'm glad you asked. We are really looking hard at, at adding other brands to the business that are uh, built on a foundation of providing Canadians with really good, wholesome, responsibly sourced, grown products. And so we're on the lookout right now and we have actually put somebody in place full-time to look for these small companies that are uh, local and are looking for a hand. Uh, you know, they've built their business to a point where they know that they they maybe could use a little help. So we'd like to be able to participate in that. And, um, you know, we see that uh, Ocean Brands becoming a bit of a house for a lot of really cool brands that are uh, making sure that we're, we're providing good, wholesome food to Canadians in a sustainable way. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you so much for listening. Please leave a review about Anchored online. Mm-hmm.